Romans 2, verse 25. Let us hear the word of our God. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, for those of you who are visiting with us here today, we've been making our way through these opening chapters of Romans. Uh, And over the last few months, we started in chapter 1, verse 18, and we are now up to this point. And um, basically, Paul has been describing for us how sinful we are. And so I begin now by asking this question. Have I stepped on all of your toes and fingers yet? Or more accurately, has God through Paul done so? Paul is certainly trying to step on anything that we might hope in. He does not want us to think that we can contribute anything at all to our salvation in Christ. He began in chapter 1, verses 18 and following by saying that everyone suppresses the truth about God and replaces him with an idol or other false things. And so because of this sin, the consequences are he gives us over to sexual sins. He gives us over to social sins. And so when you participate in gossip or slander, or even if you're just standing there listening to someone gossip and slander and don't tell them to stop, then this is an indication that God is judging you for your idolatry. If you are lusting after someone or you're looking at pornography, this is an indication that God is judging you for your idolatry. Paul then, in chapter 2, exposes those who think, well, I'm better than those people. I don't sit as much as those people. And once again, Paul really is speaking to all of us. Because all of us think we're pretty good, or at least better than somebody else. But whenever we criticize someone, we are actually condemning ourselves. Because we don't keep God's standard perfectly either. What we are doing is comparing ourselves to others rather than comparing ourselves to God and his perfect standard. And so Paul has stomped on these toes, if you will. Well, now here, beginning in verse 17, especially in chapter 2, Paul has turned our attention to believers, to those who go to church. He speaks initially here of the Jew, of course, but as I've talked about, this finds application for us today, for Christians. God has granted us many, many, many blessings. We not only have general revelation 
in creation. We not only have the law of God written on our hearts, but we have the Bible. We have the promises of God. We have the covenants. We have the Messiah. And you might say we have an even more of this compared to the Jew because we're on this side of Christ's coming. We are given the privileges to teach. But as we saw last time, Paul is saying <clears throat> that we're all a bunch of hypocrites because none of us practice what we preach. Not perfectly. We are all liars, gossips. We all stretch the truth. We all have said things that are hateful, spiteful, and uncaring. We all have stolen from people, maybe their honor, maybe their time, maybe their things. We all have been unfaithful to our spouse, even if you're not married yet, because of what's going on in our minds and hearts. We all have coveted things, dishonored those in authority. We all have worshiped things that God has made. We don't set apart the Lord's day in worship and rest. We think, oh, I've given an hour, that's enough. For all of these sins, we blaspheme God. All of us stand condemned. And so, if you're sitting there and you're still thinking, I'm better than that person. If you're sitting there and you're still prone to criticize people, if you think that you really don't have any idols in your life, or if you think, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't sin that much, then you have yet to hear the message of Paul and Romans, verses, chapter 1, verses 18 and following. And if you have yet to fall flat on your face in humility, if you have yet to come to the point of acknowledging how wretched you are, even now as a child of God saved by God's grace, this may be an indication you're not saved at all. Because you're holding on to something in your life that you think God is happy about. And therefore... Salvation somehow depends on me in some way or another. Now let me address it this way. Okay. I think we can say that everyone in the world accepts the truth that we are not perfect. And you talk to unbelievers, what do you often hear when they sin and when they fail in some way? Well, <clears throat> I'm not perfect. I'm just human, right? Or, right, they thump their chest, oh, my bad, you know. Unbelievers recognize that they are not perfect. It's those in the church that sometimes struggle to really accept this truth. But it's more for us. We can't just say, well, yeah, I know I'm, I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short. I know I need Jesus and all that. But what Paul is trying to do, he spends 64 verses. By the time we get to chapter 3, verse 21, he spends 64 verses stomping on all of our toes and fingers, saying, there is absolutely nothing in you that is worthy of any blessing from God. Have you really come to terms with that? 
Or are you still holding on to something that you think God's happy with me about that? Well, you might say Paul has another toe to stomp on in this final section in chapter 2. And as I've already begun to do back in verse 17, as we come to these verses, we can take his immediate verses here for the Jew and circumcision, and we can make application for ourselves as Christians, the true Jew, you might say, the people of God who now um, uh, are, are Christians. We also can transition from circumcision to baptism. It's, it's a direct connection. Paul's making the exact same points, whether he's talking about Jew or Christian or circumcision or baptism. Now, we can expand on that then and go beyond circumcision and baptism to the other means of grace that God has given to us. So, our scripture reading, our devotion times, our coming to worship, celebrating the Lord's Supper, our prayers, even other Christian activities can fit in this category of what he is talking about. And so, Paul is simply saying, not even the gifts that God has given to us as his people, not one of them is going to save us from the judgment that we deserve, because none of us do them perfectly, use them perfectly, and they're not designed to save us. So when you twist the scriptures or use baptism in the Lord's Supper in some magical way, if your prayer life is to try to change God, or if you're distracted in worship, if you minister to others selfishly, and all these things become useless because none of them are designed to save us. And so let's come now with this in mind to what he says in verse 25. He says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Okay. And notice how he begins with the word for. This is his concluding point. We're going to see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, a, a side discussion and in verses 9 to 20, this is his culminating summary, but he really has come to the conclusion of his point by the time he gets to the end of chapter 2. And so four, the last main idea is this. Circumcision is only good if you're obeying God's law. Baptism is only good if you obey and do what God says perfectly. Circumcision is only good if you're going to obey, if you don't obey, then those things are meaningless. They make no difference in our lives because we now are no different than the unbeliever, he says. Now, circumcision, of course, was a sign of the Old Covenant. Okay. <clears throat> if you were circumcised, you think of Abraham, of course, and think of Isaac and Jacob and the rest, right? When they were circumcised, this proclaimed to everybody that they were someone that God had chosen, that they were part of God's covenant people. With the cutting away of the foreskin and the shedding of blood, this proclaimed to everybody, hey, our sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. I am right with God. And it also proclaimed that the Spirit was working within the person. 
We'll expand on that point in verses 28 and 29. But these are the main things that circumcision was communicating. But Paul now says, if you sin, this circumcision will not save you from God's wrath. Because God demands perfection. God demands holiness. To expand on the point, right? Having God's word, that's not going to save us. Having the privileges of being God's people, okay? a Christian going to church, that's not going to save you either. <clears throat> being baptized, reading the Bible, praying, witnessing to others, none of these things are going to save us when we sin. In fact, we could even say, and other scriptures do say this for us clearly, that all these privileges now become liabilities and add to our judgment when we sin. The unbeliever who doesn't do any of these things is judged for their sin. But the professing believer who has all these things and doesn't use them perfectly has a greater sin. And these things, in a sense, become liabilities for us. Now, the Jews in Paul's day, for the most part, thought that if you were circumcised, this guaranteed salvation and guaranteed automatic blessings and God's favor. You remember the situation with Jeremiah at the end of Israel before they went into exile in Babylon. And you may recall that Jeremiah was going around saying, basically, Babylon is coming. God is going to judge you for your sins. Be ready for it. Don't resist it. And, and, and people were like, what are you talking about, Jeremiah? They threw him in a pit. They burned up his sermons. And I mean, they didn't treat him nicely at all. And yet they said, hey, we're, we're descendants of Abraham. God has given us the land. He's given us the temple. We won't go into exile. We, we can't face judgment because right, we're circumcised. Jeremiah said, no, that's the wrong way of thinking. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. There's nothing automatic about these outward religious activities. The water in baptism does not save us. The sincerity of our faith does not save us. Any Christian activity does not save us because we do none of them perfectly. Okay? Outward Jewish activities, outward Christian activities do not save one at all. And I almost picked this hymn here today, but I decided to do the other ones uh, this morning. But you remember hymn 242, the first line goes, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. Now, replace sacrifices with any other religious activity and you have the same idea. There is not one religious thing that we do that can wash away the stain of our sin and give us peace with God. Okay. And so again, notice what Paul's done here. He's not talking about our idolatry like he did in chapter 1. He's not talking about our moralism as he did at the beginning of this chapter. He's now talking specifically about godly things. They're not going to save us either. Let's turn here first to uh, Matthew chapter 3. 
I'm going to look at a few other passages here this morning that expand on this thought. In Matthew chapter 3, this is John the Baptist. And uh, beginning in verse 7, notice what he says. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up to, uh, children to Abraham from these stones. So you, do you hear how John is saying the same as Paul here? Hey, just because you're a descendant of Abraham means nothing. That's not going to mean you're going to be safe from the wrath to come. Just because you're ethnically descended from Abraham means nothing. Because we're sinners is the implication, right? He calls them a brood of vipers. Jesus said, of course, that we should know, a, uh, we can know a tree by its fruit. But that good fruit is not going to save us. Visible, external, outward activities, in one sense, can be done by anyone. Even a monkey can do some of these things. Rituals save no one when they are done imperfectly. Let's turn now to Philippians chapter 3. This may be one of the clearest, if not the clearest passage where Paul addresses this thought. In Philippians 3, let's begin our reading in verse 2. He says this, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now let me pause here a moment. He's talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who said, well, Gentiles can be part of the church now, but they have to become Jews first. So they had to be circumcised and do some of these other Jewish things. Paul calls them dogs. I think he disagreed with them a little bit. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision." who worship God in the Spirit. Now Paul's going to talk about the Holy Spirit at the end of Romans 2. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. He's going to get to these ideas. All right, it continues then. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, and fill in the blank with any other thing that we think is going to be pleasing to our God. Everything that he lists here are things that we see in the scriptures. He, He was doing the right things. He was blameless, he says. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That word for rubbish means what women use during their monthly cycle. It's very vivid. In Isaiah, we are told that all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags. It's still talking about what women use. 
the best things we do. And Paul was the best of the best. And he says, all of those wonderful things I did, just throw them in the trash. Burn them up. No righteousness of mine is worth anything. So he continues here, verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's going to get, of course, to these ideas of how we are saved. But right now, he is saying there's nothing we can do, even good religious things that God has given to us, none of them are going to save. Some of you may have gone to the Reformation service last Sunday night at Covenant. And Pastor Robinson was preaching, and at one point he said, if we could hold on to... 0.00001 or whatever the exact number was, if we could hold on to even that little amount, and if we could contribute even that small of an amount in our right standing before God, then we could boast. But as he was preaching in Ephesians 2, the point is there is no boasting in ourselves. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to do even that much. perfectly before our God. And so because of that, all of our good things are filthy rags. Now, you know that in your head, right? I've talked about this. You've heard this before. But have you really wrapped yourself around that idea? Think of some of the best things that you have done. Do you see how wretched it is? Or do you think, oh, I did a pretty good job there. You know, God's happy with me there. Paul will not allow us to do this. He is stomping on our, our toes. He says, there is nothing in you. Absolutely nothing. Because we sin. And so don't just know the right answer. Okay? <clears throat> really grasp onto this idea and internalize it. And you'll do that imperfectly, too. Let's turn back a few pages to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul says similarly here. In Galatians 5, verse 1, he says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's speaking about the Judaizers again requiring circumcision for the Gentile. Verse 2, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. There you go. That's the issue right there, right? If we are going to try to do something to be right with God, we have to keep the whole law. Not just a little bit, everything, he said. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit, oh, there's the Spirit again, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Or replace verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, no religious practice at all, whether circumcision or baptism or church attendance or tithing or you name it, none of them avail anything because we do none of them perfectly. We either keep the whole law or we don't. Either we uphold God's standard of perfection or we don't. It is either my obedience or Christ's obedience. It's either my work or God's grace. It's either the, my power within or it is the spirit in me. There is no middle ground. And again, Paul is taking 64 verses to convince us of this point. He knows that... <clears throat> He can't just say this in a verse or two because we're going to think, well, okay, but what about this? Yeah, this must be okay. He's trying to cover all the bases so we won't have anything left to hope in. That every single one of our toes are stomped upon. Because when we focus on our outward behaviors, we're missing the whole point, you might say. Our heart is far from God. We are, in essence, saying that we're a hypocrite. Like Paul before Acts chapter 9. Like the Judaizers who said the Gentiles had to become Jews to be truly saved. No external activity will make anyone a true believer and avoid God's judgment. So fill in the blank after circumcision with anything that you think God is happy with in your life. None of them will save you. We are all worthless when it comes to our godly behaviors. Let me say a few more things here in this way. When you come back to Romans 2, let me read the verse again. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. If you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If you're circumcised, if you're an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, one of God's people, if you have the mark on you saying that you're set apart from sinners and thus you're spared the judgment, the Jews in Paul's day said the only way you can undo that is if you apostatized. If you come right out and say, I don't believe in Yahweh anymore and I'm leaving Israel, that they believe that that's the only way you could undo your circumcision. But Paul says, if you sin once in the smallest possible way, your circumcision is meaningless. Your godly behaviors become meaningless. So, again, I know I'm being redundant here today, but Paul's being redundant here in this section. Let me say this, too. Signs are only signs. As we focus on circumcision here, and by extension, baptism, right? The sign right out here by the road says Rocky Springs Church, but that's not the church, right? This is the church. There's a sign out 
there. This points to Franklin and Butler and such, but that's not the city itself. So in the same way, circumcision and baptism are not the essence of salvation. They only point to what God does in us. But our tendency, of course, is to trust in these outward signs rather than in God. And when we do, we're left out in the cold. It might be a nice sign out there, pretty flowers in the spring and decorative stones, but it's not the reality. Let me try to say some of these things a little bit differently. We are here now sitting in the visible church, right? Uh, This is the church of God that we can see. We see each other and um, we hear each other. We can talk to each other. We've sung together, prayed together and so forth. The visible church is made up of professing believers and their children. And we do all kinds of outward acts of religion. We've done many here this morning. Hopefully, everyone here is a true believer. And that God has received your outward acts of religion through Christ. And he is pleased because they've come through Christ. But maybe there are some here that are not true believers. We can say that every one of us trusts in our outward behavior in one way or another. And we don't trust in Christ because we're not saved because of our faith. Our faith is imperfect. And so just because you're part of the visible church doesn't mean you're a true believer. Or as Paul's going to say in Romans 9, just because you're Israel doesn't mean you're an Israelite. Paul talks about the remnant being merely outward part, uh, uh, excuse me, many were outwardly part of Israel. Many are today outwardly part of the church. These outward blessings do not guarantee a thing. Church members who sin deserve judgment. That's his point. So again, I say, think of those things that you rely upon that you think God's happy with you. Even those things you do imperfectly. And you deserve judgment. None of them can save you. Because even if we sin but once, as James says in chapter 2, verse 10, we deserve judgment. Have I stomped on all your toes yet? I'm trying. That's partly why I'm being repetitive. There is no hope in ourselves. Only God can save us. And again, I say, don't just know this in your head. Don't just understand, well, yeah, I'm imperfect. Grasp the idea. And recognize that as much as you believe it sincerely, even that sincerity is imperfect. Our only hope is what God has done through Christ. And so let us accept this truth. Now... Lord willing, next time we will look at the rest of this section and eventually we'll get to the final answer and we get to chapter 3, verse 21. But again, Paul is here stomping away 
and let's not ignore what he's saying. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, your word you have given to us. And uh, we thank you even for passages such as this that uh, don't necessarily make us feel good about ourselves. For the express purpose that we would turn to you alone as our only hope, as our only way to be spared the judgment we deserve. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to live lives of godliness and holiness, yes. But we pray too, Lord, that you would help us not to trust in that. That you would help us to see our failures, even in our best things. That even in our best things, they, they might as well be thrown away. May this then cause us to look to Christ, who did not sin once. And in everything he did, he did it perfectly. May our greater knowledge of our own sin help us to see the perfection of Christ, and may it cause us to hope in him even more. Not just initially in our justification, but every day in our sanctification. We pray, Lord, for your mercies in this way. And may our focus on our sin in this way bring you honor and glory. May it elicit faith. May it cause us to turn from ourselves. All for your honor and glory. That we would not blaspheme your name. That your name would be hallowed and lifted up because of your grace to your people. And so, Lord, we pray these things then in the name of Christ. Amen.